0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 29 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues, in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. David M. Lampton, is George and Sadie Hyman professor and director of China studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the founding director of China studies at the Nixon Center in Washington, D.C. He has served as president of the National Committee on U.S.-China relations in New York City and as director of the China Policy Program at the American Enterprise Institute. He is the author of numerous books and articles on Chinese domestic and foreign affairs, including his most recent book, The Three Faces of Chinese Power, Might, Money, and Minds. In this recent book, Dr. Lampton describes China's emerging position of power and influence in the contemporary world as one of the transformative developments of the 21st century. And he asserts that, quote, if US policymakers continue to view China's power in substantially coercive terms, when it is growing most rapidly in the economic and intellectual domains, they will be playing the wrong game. End quote. Today, he will offer his perspective on China's multidimensional participation in our 21st century world, a reality he describes as both a staggering opportunity and a challenge. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum Dr. David M. Lampton.
1: Well, it's wonderful to be in this beautiful sanctuary. I can assure you my uh, usual lecture room at Johns Hopkins is not nearly as grand or uh, conducive to deep thought, and I just couldn't be happier to be here than and be able to talk about my favorite subject, and one I think it's important to our children and our grandchildren, namely, what does the fact of 20% of the world's population that are Chinese acquiring more capability of all kinds. How's that capability going to be used and what does it mean for all of us? I do want to thank uh, Tim Hart Anderson for that gracious introduction. I want to thank all of you for being here and I want to thank Susan McKenna for inviting me to this wonderful city and wonderful place. As I was coming uh, from Washington yesterday, Washington DC, uh, I was thinking about the, the institutions uh, as they pertain to China here in, uh, in not only in Minneapolis but in Minnesota, I was thinking about Carleton College. I have a great friend there who's a, a professor. He was also ambassador to Burma and the um, uh, consul general in Hong Kong. His name's Bert Levin. They have a wonderful program on China there, also your wonderful uh, college, McAllister College uh, here. So great educational institutions, not to mention the University of Minnesota. So great tradition of dealing with Asia and China here educationally. I also am privileged to know the uh, congressman from the 8th District of Minnesota, Mr. Oberstar been to China with him. He's very interested, but uh, I think germane to this issue of Chinese power. He's chairman of the Infrastructure and Transportation Committee of the House of Representatives, very um, involved with um, building infrastructure, roads, ports, and he gave a very memorable talk to other members of Congress when I was there about the need for American infrastructure to be able to move the goods and and agricultural and industrial produce of this part of the world, get it down the Mississippi River, get it out of the middle of this country, get it to China, and so forth. Uh, He's a great leader on building the kind of infrastructure that's going to make us competitive uh, in Asia. So, I've always thought he was a great uh, public servant. I was struck and particularly interested when I received the invitation to come here because I'm often asked to talk about China, but I'm never uh, asked to talk about China in ethical perspective. And China and its growth, its development is a wonderful ethical issue. And I was thinking, uh, during the Cold War, if you think about it, we were all very worried about nuclear holocaust. Presumably it was going to start in Europe with some Soviet move there. But during the Cold War, in fact, the major hot wars of the Cold War all were in Asia. And one, the Korean War, had a direct conflict between the United States and China. And uh, the other, the Vietnam War, was a proxy war. In fact, we did fight about 350,000 Chinese, along with the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong in that period. So the long and the short of it is that I think uh, the issue of China and how we accommodate its power is a primary, going to be a primary determinant of peace in the 21st century. And much of the war we experienced in the second half of the 20th century had either to do with China directly or indirectly. I might just give you a little personal anecdote that makes this uh, uh, sort of a, a central, uh, what you might call visceral issue for me. In the Vietnam War, I was a, uh, an enlisted man in the medical corps of the Army Reserve, and I was in the burn center of Brook Army Hospital down in San Antonio, Texas. That burn ward was filled with, uh, I think at the height, probably about 200 severely burned people, in, uh, for the most part American citizens, uh, in the war. And uh, it was a very large general hospital and brightly lit at night. Many years later, my wife and I were down speaking, and I was speaking in San Antonio, and I said, Why don't we drive up and see the hospital? We came up over the rise, and suddenly the hospital was dark. There wasn't a light in it. And I turned to my wife and I said, You know, this is what peace with China means. You can close down a hospital. So, in any case, this issue of getting our relationship with right, right with China as it grows in power is not an abstract issue. There are other ethical issues, and I hope in the question and answer period we'll, we'll talk about it. But certainly we have the issue, for example, of what you're reading about today, Google's withdrawal from China. Is this an ethically good thing to do or an ethically more questionable thing? And I, I don't have the answer to that question, but a case could be made to provide more information to the Chinese people, even if it's not perfectly open. It might be the ethical thing to do. On the other hand, maybe not cooperating with the regime pursuing policies of which you don't approve is the ethical thing. Similarly, meeting with the Dalai Lama. That was in the news about a month ago. The president decided to do so to meet with him as a religious leader. But on the other hand, it may have come at the cost of the breakdown of military to military ties, at least for a period, with the United States. So where's the ethical path on that? Or take another question, the the obligations that the United States may have towards Taiwan, a small democracy, 23 million people off the shore of 1.3 billion people. Most of our power and economic interests would incline us in the direction of the mainland. But maybe our values incline us more towards Taiwan. What's the balance that we should have in that uh, policy? So the long and the short of it is that almost every direction you turn on China policy there is an ethical dimension and I'm not here to tell you nor do I know what the ethical answer to all of this is. But this is an area of study and exercise of power as a nation in which I think we should think very seriously about the ethical issues. And I welcome the opportunity to sort of cast what I have to say in that larger larger framework. Now, what I want to talk about today is power. And that would seem to be a topic that wouldn't lend itself particularly to uh, ethical discourse. But the subtitle of my book is Might, Money, and Minds," And I guess if I have a bottom line is that I think China has a strategy. And that strategy is, of course, to increase its military power, the might, but to place the emphasis on increasing its economic power, the money, and increasing its intellectual power, the minds and those latter two are the core of the Chinese strategy and for 30 years the Chinese have been remarkably successful producing 9.8 percent compounded growth for the last 30 years on average and China has a a strategy that's successful and I think there's every reason to think China broadly speaking is going to continue with that strategy and that leads to my second point which is that I think reform in China requires reform in the United States. It has implications for us which means we have to begin to think how do we begin to increase our capacity as a society to compete incidentally not just with China but India as well. The 20th century was a period in which 40% 40% of the world's smart, high-savings, innovative people, namely the Chinese and the Indians, were out of the world economy. It was like they were in a football stadium watching the game, and it was the capitalists and the, uh, the big powers uh, of the Cold War era that were down on the field playing the game. But in the 21st century, The people that were in the bleachers in the 20th century, namely the Indians and the Chinese and and Brazilians and many others, have now got on the field, they're playing the game and they are capable. And so how are we going to organize ourselves and make decisions that's going to make us effective in that very new game? And that's ultimately that I think we need to think about what we're doing. Are we making the right decisions? maybe a little more, and worry a little less about the Chinese. I'm not unconcerned. It doesn't mean we don't have to take into full account what they're doing. But we shouldn't divert ourselves that the game is about the money and the mines. That's where the competition is. And we shouldn't get preoccupied, it seems to me, with the military dimension, although we have to keep our eye on that, and it's not insignificant. Now let me, that's sort of the bottom line of of, uh, I think both my book and what I have to say, but I think there's a lot of interesting detail uh, that get us to, or at least got me uh, to that point. First thing I'd like to just talk briefly to set the stage for our, our discussion is talk a little about some recent developments and the context in which our discussion is going to go on you're probably reading and hearing a lot of sound and fury about all the problems in US-China relations. We had under President Obama in the first year a relatively smooth year, but at the end of the year suddenly this cascade of problems came bursting forth and you've been reading about it whether it's in USA Today or The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN is filled with all of the problems I've already mentioned Google, I've already mentioned the Dalai Lama and his visit, uh, Taiwan weapons sales where President Obama announced uh, in January he was going to sell about $6.4, 6500000000 billion in weapons uh, to Taiwan, the PRC not happy about that. Yeah, they. Uh, uh, terminated, or at least let's say postponed, military-to-military relations with the U.S. You may remember that uh, President Obama and Premier Wen Jiabao were in uh, Copenhagen at the uh, climate change meeting, and that, I guess I would say delicately didn't go so well, although it wasn't the worst outcome one could have imagined. Uh, You also, if you read the business page, will find U.S. business now is uh, expressing in a way it has not before some of its dissatisfactions on on the terms of its business dealings with China. And then just on the front page of the Wall Street Journal this morning was a long article about China watering down sanctions along with Russia pertaining to Iran and its nuclear weapons development. So if you pay a lot of attention, as indeed you should, to all of these issues, uh, you would get the impression, I think, that U.S.-China relations is in a basket full of trouble. Well, it could work out that way. I don't have a crystal ball. But basically, I think this relationship is much stronger than just the individual issues. That the world has become so interdependent economically And that if you ask, what are the big problems in the world we have to deal with, there is no problem for which we can sacrifice cooperation with 20% of the world's people who happen to be Chinese. So I'm of the mind that despite all of the problems, there's an undergirding stability and necessity for mutual cooperation that is not always apparent when you read uh, the newspaper. So I think that's one important context. This discussion's going on amidst a lot of of problems. A second, uh, I think, context to keep in mind, and this is very interesting to me because President Bush on his way out, George W. Bush, and Obama on his way in agreed about the nature of the evolving power situation in the world. One of the last documents issued by the Bush administration uh, was in November of 2008 uh, and it was called Global Trends 2025 and it was a document, a, a, almost a book length document, on, uh, by the 16 intelligence agencies of the United States talking about the trends of power in the world. And what was interesting to me was on, I believe, Roman numeral page four of that report, was the assertion that the United States, over time, uh, is going to be less and less dominant in the world and power is shifting towards Asia. That is not necessarily a statement I would have expected to come out of the Bush administration. And I think uh, on that ground, I wouldn't propose to speak, and I don't speak for the Obama administration in any way, but I think on that they would have essentially the intelligence community would have a a similar uh, assessment. That power in the world is shifting towards uh, to some extent a little in Latin America but certainly towards Asia, China and India most notably. Uh, And that the United States is going to have to therefore adjust its ambitions in the world to take account of this shifting uh, power. I think uh, A third context that's very important for us as we think about and have our discussion is that the global financial crisis in which we are still finding ourselves mired, China is coming out of that in a stronger position than it went into it. If we look at the last two global financial crises, the Asian financial crisis of 1997-98, and then the current one we'll say began in 2008, China went into those in a weaker position that it's coming out. And why is that? China has driven that 30 years of growth at about 9.8 percent for 30 years because it's been urbanizing its people. About three or four hundred million people have been urbanized in China since 1978 a population approximately the size of the United States. But China still has four hundred million people to go. And the idea that China is growing just because it exports to the United States is a mistaken idea. It's true we have a trade surplus. It's true that trade or deficit. It's it's true that that surplus is important to China. But China is growing because it's urbanizing and moving its population from the rural areas to the cities, and we have to expect that's going to continue. So China's been able to keep growth in high single-digit numbers throughout this period that's been negative growth in the United States, Japan, and Europe. So China's been able to take advantage of the last two economic crises to enhance its position. Also, when we think of communist China, we may think of undisciplined spending. The Chinese are extremely conservative in their fiscal management. The the Republican caucus would wish to be as disciplined. Uh, as, as, as the Chinese are on fiscal management issues. Just give you a few figures. Household debt in China at the start of the global financial crisis was 14% of GDP. That means nothing to you until you realize the U.S. was at 100% of uh, GDP in household debt. Government debt in China at the start of the global economic crisis in China was 15% in round numbers of GDP. Japan, government debt, 170% of GDP. Foreign debt, China only had 8.5% of its GDP. In foreign debt, the US is at 20% and going higher. So the long and the short of it is, it wasn't by accident that China's been able to keep growth going with a sound monetary and fiscal policy broadly speaking and urbanization have been big pluses there. So with that kind of setting that we've got big problems with China that we have a less dominant United States perhaps and certainly we have a stronger China that's making the right decisions. I don't mean morally right and, and all of the individual decisions in terms of governance of China. I have the qualms that many people here I'm sure have but when I look at the big macro decisions they're making about training their s- their students making research investments, quadrupling the size of higher education since 1995. They're making the right decisions, and they're growing, and there's no reason to think they're going to stop. We could imagine problems. The Chinese have given lots of loans, and they're worried about inflation. You can worry all about that. But the long and the short of it is, they've made the right decisions, broadly speaking, for the last 30 years, and I see no reason to expect they are going to stop making them in the period ahead. Now, against that background, let me just uh, wind up with a, a few observations about how I think the Chinese think about themselves. Because I think it's very important, if you're going to try to effectively deal with people, to understand how they look at the world. You don't have to agree with it, but you better understand it because that's what's going to shape their behavior. I think one of the interesting things about one aspect of the way in which the Chinese look at the world is how they look at their security. What are the Chinese leaders when they wake up in the morning most worried about in terms of their security? And I had a fascinating opportunity to talk with Australia's uh, Minister of Defense, a man named Rick Smith at the time, a couple years ago, and I take careful notes in my meeting and I wrote down what he said because he'd also been the ambassador to China. And he said the Chinese are very conservative. They fear China itself. They say that the threat to China is not outside of China. The security map of China is not red arrows pointing into the map. Rather, it is the map that shows the number of incidents and crimes, blokes robbing banks, red dots, all over. China's leaders, when they wake up in the morning, are most worried about keeping control in China and keeping this economic juggernaut going. They are not there planning how to make our life difficult. Now they may in fact engage in many activities that have the results of making our life somewhat more difficult. But on the other hand, this is a regime that's very inward looking in the sense of trying to manage their own situation. This leads to a second a part of their strategy. Therefore China at the current time is trying to in effect reduce external threat and external preoccupation so that it minimizes the distraction of paying attention and then minimizes the diversion of resources so they can focus internally. So my second and concluding point here is that China desperately wants to get along with the United States for the foreseeable future. We can argue out 20 years from now, when they're more secure at home and more powerful abroad, perhaps their policies will be different. And that's a problem. It's an uncertainty. But the one thing you can be absolutely sure of, if we try to limit China's growth now, A, we will fail because China's destiny is in the hands of the Chinese people. And secondly, we will antagonize the Chinese to build up precisely the capabilities we fear. So I would just end by saying, let's look at the competition with China. Keep the military, the coercive in mind. Don't ignore it. But pay attention to what China is doing to develop its economy and its minds, and ask yourself, are we going to be competitive with that? And I think the answer is, we've got to get to work. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, David Lampton. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis, I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is China scholar Dr. David M. Lampton. While the ushers collect questions from our in-house audience, I invite you to join us for the next town hall forum on Thursday, April 15th, when Brian McLaren, a leading voice in the emergent church movement will explore a new kind of Christianity. Additional information can be found online at westminstertownhallforum.org. And now Dr. Lampton if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. How would you assess the quality of news coverage Americans receive on China?
1: Well, that's that's a good question, and I I guess my basic view is I've been looking at that coverage over the last 35 years in a very detailed way. I would say, in all fairness to the mass media, it has gotten better, particularly in the print media. When I first began to interact with China, uh, essentially reporters were located in Hong Kong and Taiwan, couldn't even get into the country and over the last 30 years our access has become much better. Uh, Also the Chinese have become much more open with their information, not perfectly so, so I would say generally the coverage has got a lot better. I would say there's just one countervailing thing and that is I'm I'm permanently frustrated with television coverage because uh, it just seems with a few exceptions the the medium requires such short uh, amounts of bursts of intellectual exertion uh, that you're almost forced to, uh, to simplify beyond the point of any recognition of the complexity of the issue. So I would say television coverage, uh, it certainly in terms of the uh, the 24-hour cable channels and so on is just, um, I would say, almost pathetically um, uh, superficial. But the news media in the print realm I think has improved generally.
0: Under what circumstances could the U.S. and China become friends, like the relationship between, say, the U.S. and the European Union, or maybe the U.S. and Israel, where there might be differences, but never a threat to each other's core national interests or survival?
1: Well, you know, I think that should be our national objective. I always have a little bit of problem with countries and the concept of Friendship because I think countries tend to have interests and they tend to be diversified within themselves, uh, pluralized. And therefore it's difficult to to talk about friendship. I would agree with Canada and so on and Britain we come as close in international affairs to that characterization. But certainly the French, we've had major arguments over NATO. They even withdrew from the military arm of NATO. Um, we have problems all the time in our China policy with the EU, pursuing directions with China, we uh, wouldn't prefer they do. Uh, so the long and the short of it is I think we should aspire to that objective. In reality, I think China's a continent. It's it's very diverse. Uh, the U.S. is a continent. We're very diverse. We're at 40 5,000 per capita GDP. China's probably at two to 3,000, maybe four, if you believe some figures. But the long and the short of it is we're at very different stages of economic development. We have different power interests. We're in different parts of the world with different challenges to our security. So I'd be just happy if we got along and cooperated on the issues where we can cooperate and put to the side some of the more contentious issues to the degree we can. But friendship, I think, is a pretty long way off in a comprehensive sense that you were referring to.
0: Can you describe the current relationship between China and Taiwan in terms of its future? What what do you expect that future to hold between those two nations?
1: Well, uh, the China-Taiwan relationship, I would say uh, your this question in uh, March of 2010, and it is in the best shape it's been probably in modern history. I think that, you know, we can look around the world at all the things that don't seem to be going so well. cross strait relations are, got lots of problems, but they're moving in the right direction, and strategically U.S., I think, uh, policy should be to encourage cross-strait reconciliation. We now have a president in Taiwan who has his domestic political problems to be sure, not clear he'll be re-elected in 2012, at least he has his work cut out for him. But he is pursuing cross-strait reconciliation on the economic front, and if they can move on the economic front, there's already talk, both by the president of China and the president of Taiwan, of moving at some point towards a cross-strait military agreement or peace agreement. I think all of that is profoundly in the interests of the United States, and I think we ought to do everything that is appropriate uh, to nurture that process. Now if the current president of Taiwan somehow stumbles in terms of his own domestic politics is not re-elected, there is waiting in the wings a party called the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party. That would, I think, push for more independence of Taiwan, and that would stimulate China to be let's say much more belligerent from an American perspective and uh, let's put it that way I think it would not either be in our interest nor for that matter the interests of Taiwan and the PRC so long and the short of it is I think it's moving in a positive direction we ought to see how we can help that
0: Can you describe China's relationship with North Korea and how they can influence or uh, guide perhaps uh, that nation to come back into the community of nations in a new way?
1: Well, I don't want to be facetious with a very serious question, but you're always struck by something sometimes somebody says. And one of my Chinese friends, when I ask him pretty much that question, he says, you know, we have a long experience with the North Koreans. Not only have we lived next door to them, uh, but with the communist regime, we've lived next to it since 1949, with friends like the North Koreans who needs enemies? So, so the, the truth of the matter is I think that the Chinese are pretty frustrated with their neighbors. The difference is we are at about six or seven thousand miles removed and the Chinese aren't and therefore they worry an implosion or disorder in North Korea would spill refugees towards China and an area of China, the Northeast, that's having a lot of problems. So this is a perfect example of where the United States and China have a common interest. China does not want a nuclear North Korea, which it now has, uh, and certainly the United States doesn't. But the US is willing to entertain some means by which, or at least in the past, was talking about using means to change that situation in North Korea that the Chinese found very frightening given the fact that they're their neighbors. Incidentally, the South Koreans found it very frightening, some of the proposals as well. So I think the Chinese bottom line is that regime change is not in China's interests, or at least rapid regime change. What's in China's interest is evolution of the North Korean regime in the way China itself has evolved since Deng Xiaoping began openness and reform in 78. And they're willing to take a very long view about how long it's going to take the North Koreans to get into, as you put it, the community of nations. So I think we share the same broad objectives of having a a, a North Korea that's integrated into the world community that's non-nuclear, but the Chinese are not willing to use some of the, uh, let's say, more stringent methods that at least have been proposed from time to time to get the uh, North Koreans denuclearized. Uh, Just one last thought on that. The fact of the matter is, we began this process of talking to the North Koreans in the early 90s. We began the six-party talks in 2003. And we've been talking on and off all that period. The long and the short of it is the North Koreans have continued to build nuclear weapons and have more. Still the question how deliverable and usable they may be, but the long and the short of it is I haven't seen the talks actually change materially the situation about which we're worried.
0: Can you compare China's future as opposed to India's future?
1: Well this is a a very uh, uh, both speculative question and important question and it brings in the difference between what is your expectation for a more authoritarian regime on the one hand and a more democratic regime on the other. Um, If you just ask uh, me which country do I expect to have the highest growth rate for the next 30 years I'll give you the same answer I gave 30 years ago when a corporation asked me exactly the same question and to debate it. Where's the economic future? Is it with India? Is it with China? I think India will, will move ahead and in fact its growth rate is going up so I'm not taking anything away from what India has achieved but I expect when we look back 30 years from today we're going to see China with a higher growth rate and a bigger role in the global system than India. India will be playing a more and more important role as well, but I, I, I would be um, putting my money on China in terms of growth rate and influence in the world system.
0: A number of questions about uh, China's own internal uh, creation of infrastructure, its policies, its uh, economic policies particularly, its corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, First of all, let me just ask a kind of a basic question. Do you still consider com- uh, China a communist nation, and in, <laughs> if so, in what ways?
1: That, well let me, you had actually two questions there. Uh, the commun- is China communist? Well. Of course, if you mean communist, does it have a Communist Party? Yes, it has a Communist Party with 73 million people in it, uh, about the size of Iran in round, uh, round numbers, and that party is pretty much dedicated to maintaining its political monopoly, at least on national level issues. So if you mean does it have an authoritarian, one-party system that uh, calls itself a Communist Party, the answer is yes. I can't tell you how many Chinese have come up to me in one setting or another and said, the, Professor Lampton, don't you think we'd be better off if we called ourselves something else than the Communist Party? like..." the Republican Party or any number of things. So the Chinese are beginning to think about whether that label in itself is uh, attractive. I, uh, I wouldn't want to be misunderstood. But if you mean by communism, commitment to struggle between the proletariat, the world's working class, and the ownership of property class, China is not communist, doesn't aspire to be communist, has rejected that, and I have not met a communist in that sense in China in 15 years. Now there probably are some, and they don't trot those people out to meet me, uh, but the long and the short of it is, uh, I think as an ideological commitment, no. In fact, I think the big problem, a big problem in China is the absence of, of what you might call a vision of China's role and a vision of the good society. Now I never agreed with the communist vision, but it was an, an ethically grounded, at least in some sense, vision at its start. China now is about economic development, and I would say materialism. And that's, that, that has its own problem, but in any case, the commitment to communism is classically defined, no. Authoritarianism, yes.
0: Uh, do you agree with the assertion that uh, corruption is endemic in China, and uh, even if not endemic, and it does exist, how do we go about doing business ethically in China when we have to deal with government entities which perhaps require a way of interacting that's not ethical?
1: Yeah. Well, certainly corruption is a, a very widespread phenomenon, and however apparent it may be to foreign business people, it's even more of a part of daily life of the Chinese people. So I think we need to keep these two realms in mind, and however severe it is for foreigners, I think it's a bigger problem in the day to day life of many, many Chinese people. So, a big problem. Uh, I think the way, uh, many reasons you get corruption, uh, but one is when you are moving from one system, as China still is, from a planned economy to a market economy, um, you tend to move more rapidly towards the market when you have no regulatory or legal apparatus to govern individual behavior and I just said I think there's a kind of ethical void in China so you either count on law or regulation or regulatory institutions or ethical constraints of people to moderate that kind of rapacious behavior Uh, all of those things have not grown nearly as fast as the Chinese stampede towards the market and therefore I think you see the kind of um, um, rough primitive capitalism in effect in China that you saw in the early part of the 20th century and you know the meatpacking industry and Upton Sinclair and the jungle and this kind of behavior. So I think the long-term solution to the degree there is one is slow imposition of the rule of law, independent judiciary and judicial, the introduction of some uh, ethically grounded kind of moral framework. Uh, But these are all going to take a long time. And that's why when I began by saying, we've got to be patient, we've got to push along, we have to engage. You build institutions and ethical values by engagement and cooperation in the world. And so no matter how frustrated we get, which is often, I think we need to kind of persevere in that long-term task.
0: Follow-on question, uh, a centralized guiding hand can often be a benefit early on in a modernizing economy, but can China continue its rapid rate of economic growth without becoming more democratic?
1: Um, I think in the long run uh, that the China has created sort of a um, a situation that's uh, um, going to make it very difficult to keep tight authoritarianism forever. Um, although I think China can keep a fairly authoritarian system for a lot longer than Americans might prefer. So I'm not here predicting a rapid political change, but I think over time, and by over time I mean decades, uh, uh, that I think China will become more pluralistic and I think it will because economic growth is creating a middle class. And it's creating people who want to be innovative. And it's creating people who want to deal with the world and make artistic contributions and all sorts of uh, contributions that a human endeavor can bring. And therefore, I think, over time, China's drive to economic growth creates the political pluralization that becomes unmanageable in an authoritarian system. And I still believe that, in the long run, is the trend. In the short run, you have to kind of uh, acknowledge that China's leaders have been very good in dealing with this growing pluralism and still keeping tight political control. And I hate to keep going back to the Google example, but here's a brand new technology that facilitates uh, communication. Uh, you have a very pluralistic uh, fragmented kind of way, very difficult to control and I think most observers of China's uh, c- control of the uh, internet would uh, say that the uh, the Great Firewall of China has been a whole lot more successful uh, in a a narrow sense than many people would have predicted. Uh, I think the Chinese learned from the Tiananmen incident to, as they would say, nip political problems in the bud and their public securities become much more sophisticated. So you'll read a lot about China's authoritarian system that you get the growth of capitalism and market economy, but you're not getting the growth of democracy. Uh, I think the, you know, at the, in Chinese society people are much more free and uh, able to express their views. So at the personal level it's just been a political transformation, but at the institutional level of being able to challenge the party for control, um, that's got a long way to go and the Chinese leaders have proven themselves more capable of maintaining that control than I think a lot of people might have guessed 20 years ago.
0: Several questions about the demographics of China and particularly the, the uh, matter of a one child per family policy and the disproportionate number of males who are now growing into adulthood, what kind of impact will that have on, on China as a nation, uh, particularly in terms of your classifications of might and mind and money?
1: Yeah. Well that's a wonderful uh, question and it gets us to this whole ethical issue or at least the ethical context for thinking about um, you know, governance decisions within countries or international relations. I think in all fairness, you would have to acknowledge that the one-child policy in China, there are probably about 300 million fewer people in China today than there would have been in the absence of the one-child policy that began in 1978. So China has in effect restrained its growth, which has allowed its people to grow their per capita income. And that's a huge moral achievement. China has moved about 300 million people, maybe 400 million people, out of absolute poverty. A bigger population than the United States. So that's a huge moral plus. I'm not attributing all of that to that one child policy, but it played played a role. But that, like everything in life, came at huge, huge moral cost. Well, first of all, how did you get the one child? to be observed for, as long as it was, that system incidentally is breaking down to some considerable extent. Well, there was a lot of coercion. When I first went to China, you went into a commune, they had communes when I first went to China, health center, and up on the wall was the name of every lady, woman of childbearing age in the village, or in in the brigade, or the work team as they called them, and it had their monthly cycle on the other axis and they knew what every, when when pregnancy could occur and the village intervened to remind people that uh, you weren't authorized to have a child. Well that's not the China year now, there are no communes, there are no people doing that monitoring, there are lots of other ways to uh, and people are getting richer and women are getting jobs and you get this sort of demographic transition so we've come a long way from that but this came at moral cost in terms of free will, or free freedom, uh, but it also brought many practical problems. First of all, now you have one child responsible for f- potentially supporting two adults. You're going to have China, by 2040, is going to be an older country than the United States. And the issue is, will China be rich before it's old? And that's the real race China's leaders are in. So this one-child policy inverted the demographic pyramid and so now uh, in the year 2000 you had about six workers for every retiree. By 2040 it's going to be two workers for every retiree. That's going to be a huge tax burden. And then you mentioned the gender imbalance. China now has about 119 males for every 100 females. Well. We, we just don't even need to speculate on what kind of social problems that creates. It's, it's feeding prostitution, illegal immigration of women on the border areas. Um, it's feeding kidnapping of women in one part of the country and sale of them in the other. Um, this is a huge problem. So, you know, this is what I tell my students. You should thank the Lord every day that you're not a Chinese leader. Because, in fact, how do you weigh that 400 million people out of poverty the increased welfare of the Chinese people that are there against all these huge moral and practical costs? I don't have the answer to that.
0: Several questions about uh, US debt to China and uh, the capacity of China to Uh, influence U.S. behavior because of our debt? To what extent are they willing to exercise uh, that kind of influence on us? What happens if they start calling the debt in? How would we react?
1: Well, that's the, um, let's see, it's the 2.4, well it's it's about the 1.9 trillion dollar question that's just been asked there. China uh, has uh, about 2.4 trillion, or 2.5 now, trillion in foreign exchange reserves about which Roughly two-thirds is held in U.S. dollar denominated assets, so near two trillion in U.S. debt. Most of it's in Treasury securities, but they hold state and local bond and debt, corporate paper, and so forth. Uh, I think it's probably accurate to say no one may have a full accounting, actually, of how much Chinese, uh, or how much paper and debt, uh, U.S. debt that the Chinese have. But my main point isn't to argue about the numbers, it's, they're big. China's the biggest holder of U.S. foreign debt, at least it was last month, uh, sort of that we're close with Japan here. But uh, I think there's a more practical point I would want to make to our listeners and the audience, and that is China's not buying this debt as a favor to the U.S. This is what I mean, there's a difference between friends and countries. China is buying this debt because it's the safest place to put it with the highest return and the highest liquidity, and that's why China's buying that debt. Now, we've got to make sure that we are the safest place to put your money uh, and that it remains liquid. That's in our interest to maintain a market like that but China's not putting that money as a favor to us and that's why in the course of this crisis broadly speaking China's been buying more debt not less. Now there have been a couple of months and I think over the long run China wants to reduce its exposure in our market. I think there's a lot of criticism in China they become too much dependent on US dollar assets. Also, the interest rate's been so low, the Chinese are practical people say, we're loaning the Americans this money for, you know, two or three percent. We could put it in better things. We could be buying timber in Canada, iron ore, as they recently did in Minnesota. Uh, China's beginning to make investments all over the country, including Minnesota, to get higher returns on this money. So even if China liquidates some of its um, uh, debt over time, which I th- U.S. held debt, they will, um, I think, um, uh, diversify and probably in some sense go towards more foreign direct investment that will have higher returns. But once again, I think in general, not in security areas, but generally speaking, the U.S. Should welcome Chinese uh, uh, foreign direct investment in job-creating enterprises. Uh, And I was in Ohio, taught at Ohio State in the 1970s and 1980s in what we called the Rust Belt period. And I'll tell you, the Japanese, when they came in and built an auto plant in Marysville, Ohio, the the people in Ohio were pretty happy about that. And I see now the Chinese investing in South Carolina, as I mentioned, in Minnesota, then Kentucky, and the people that are getting jobs in those factories, or those enterprises uh, uh, I think welcome it as long as it's according to labor standards and all of the uh, observant of regulation and so forth and not in a security area so the long and the short of it is uh, I think there's a lot of talk because people see 1.8 trillion in debt and then you say well what if they sell well if they sell all that the price the US dollar is gonna fall and if the US dollar falls what's the value of that 1.9 1.9 trillion dollars they have. So the Chinese, you know, it's the old story, if you loan the bank, if the bank loans you hundred bucks, the bank's got you. If you borrowed hundred million from the bank, you've got the bank, right? So uh, in some way I think there's a little too much anxiety about the Chinese unloading debt.
0: Very quickly, are you hopeful on China and Tibet? We have just 30 seconds.
1: I would say if I was hopeful on the Taiwan issue, uh, I am not hopeful on the Tibet thing. I think uh, I've been to Tibet twice. I've met His Holiness the Dalai Lama on three occasions. I am uh, struck like everybody else with the tragedy of their circumstance and their treatment both particularly historically but also more recently. Uh, So it's not out of insensitivity. But the long and the short of it is Tibet, just the Tibet autonomous region is twice the size of Texas. It has two million people. Uh, the Greater Tibet has only six million people in it. And what we are seeing is a Han population of roughly, um, uh, you know, 1.3 billion marching across an, a, 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 a continent, just as we marched across a continent. And this had very tragic circums- uh, outcomes for the indigenous people that lay in the path of that expansion
0: thank you doctor david lampton